Welcome to Open Plaza Talks, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode focuses on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. Today we bring you a conversation between Alejandra Zareth and Dr. Loida Martel about COVID-19 and creation care. For more information about today's episode, please visit us at htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to the HTI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Alejandra Saret. I am a child of God and the associate for the Presbyterian Mission Agency, where I help folks just become the best versions of themselves. I am here with mi hermana, the Reverend Dr. Loida Martel, who is among many things, the Vice President of Academic Affairs and Dean at Lexington Theological Seminary. Today, we're here to talk about emerging diseases, globalization, Basilea of God, a ver que sale. So get comfortable, mi gente, and welcome to this conversation. Loida, thank you for being with us today. It's great to be here with you. So Loida, you have been thinking and digesting what's been going on around the world. And that's what we're here to talk about. And I'm wondering if you can just frame it for us. Like, what did you... What was going on that made you write and write and write? <laughs> well, Alex, as you know, um, in my, I, I have, I've had a, a long trajectory in my career. <clears throat> and I actually started off, uh, off as a veterinary doctor uh, practicing in, in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, so this, um, this interest in, in diseases um, it comes almost as second nature to me. Um, and then I was, of course, called by God into, uh, into the pastorate and into theological education. So when the pandemic opened up, it was an opportunity for me to reflect on these things um, from both my, my medical side of, of, of my brain, as well as the theological side of my brain. But I think what really, really impulsed me was um, I had a, a pest control guy who came to my house and uh, he made this statement that uh, that uh, that the that the pandemic had been cr- caused by a Chinese person who had eaten a bat, and and that extremely racist st- uh, statement just horrified me, and so I sat down with him and I gave him this long, I think, forty-five minute presentation on uh, the emergent diseases that have been coming up. Um, uh, and, and how they, they've increased in incidence and in severity um, and in a shorter and shorter amount of time and how that was related to climate change. And by the time I finished with him, he said, uh, said this has been so helpful to me. And now when I go from house to house, I'm going to pass on your information to other people. And I, and I wish that that was the only time that I heard those statements, but I heard those statements repeated on other occasions. And I, I had to give that explanation so many times to people who were good people. And I didn't understand where the, the on the one hand, the racist statements were coming from. Uh, I could understand the ignorance, but I couldn't understand the racism. And I decided I, I needed to write something. And I really felt moved by the spirit to write something about about not just about COVID, but about emergent viral diseases and their link to climate change. 
and how our economy and particularly globalization has moved that. And that the, the pandemic of, of, uh, of racism and the damage of climate change and the eruption of new diseases, that these were not uh, unrelated events, but were in fact very, very much in intertwined and interrelated things. And I wanted to write about that. And so here we are talking about these things. So there was intention in not titling this COVID is what I hear you saying. Exactly. I didn't want to just talk about uh, a particular disease that has been popularly known as COVID-19. In fact, it is uh, scientifically known as a subacute uh, respiratory coronavirus 2 disease, <laughs> uh, but rather, to, or, or novel coronavirus. But I really wanted to focus that, that coronavirus really is one of many diseases that have been cropping up. And again, in increasing incidence, so uh, more and more viruses in a shorter, shorter period of time that have been more and more severe in their manifestation. So if you think about it, one of the earliest ones that I think we all heard about repeatedly in the news is the Spanish flu that popped up in, nine, in 1918 sure, at the turn sure. of the century. Mm -hmm. For us, the next closest thing to a globalized pandemic was HIV. So if you think about the space of time between 1918 and HIV that popped up in, in the 1970s, there's a 60 year period that occurred. And then very shortly after HIV, then we start hearing about Ebola, West Vile virus, um, uh, SARS, the first coronavirus that came up that we don't really think about because it, 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 when it came to our shores, it was very quickly squashed. But there was actually, this is why this is coronavirus two, because there was actually a coronavirus one that hit um, sometime in early 2000. So no one and one, was that it? No, that was, that was actually a flu virus. Vale. So notice the, 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 the diminishing time between this, these diseases, mm -hmm. right? Oh, Ebola almost came to our shores. And so what we have not, what we not really thought about is how quickly these new diseases are popping up, right? So what I want us to understand is that there, these things are called emergent diseases. And emergent diseases are viral or infectious diseases that are new or either are very old and have suddenly come up again or are just totally new. They've just popped up out of nowhere. HIV is a good example of that. And, um, and what has really struck me with novel coronavirus is that we have, I have never seen a disease so politicized and so racialized since HIV. You recall when HIV popped up, it was very politicized. We, 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 people actually called it quote unquote, the gay disease. Um, there were people preaching from the pulpits that this was a punishment of God upon the gay community for their lifestyle. 
I mean, we heard such horrendous things. And then suddenly heterosexuals started coming down with it and crickets, right? You, you, you didn't hear <laughs> that, that nonsense anymore. Yeah. And then suddenly, suddenly uh, science was interested in finding a cure. Um, so I've not seen that level of politicization for a disease until this one. Because when West Nile virus popped up, we didn't call that the, the African flu virus. So why did we call this one the Chinese flu virus? So, so um, my, my point here is that we should never have racialized this. We should never have politicized this. And this has gotten this much worse because we have. <clears throat> so that's number one. Number two, these diseases are popping up because we have damaged our environment, right? Um, we have damaged the environment at many levels. We have damaged our waterways. We have damaged the air. We have damaged the ozone layer. Uh, I could go on. We have, we have destroyed ecological niches. There are whole species that disappear almost on a daily basis. So, um, and if this, and if we don't take care, the human species will be another one that will go extinct if we are not taking care. So we've got whole species that have been just being wiped out. And so what has happened is that the normal human animal barrier has been breached repeatedly. So viruses or bacteria that were normally plant uh, viruses or normally animal viruses, since they don't know where to go, we've destroyed their niches. They've jumped, exactly. They've, what, they've done what's called, they've jumped that barrier from the animal world or the plant world into the human population. Why have they been able to do that? Well, there's two things. The first one, what I just said, we've destroyed their, their, pop, their niches. But the second one is that because of the damage to the climate, there's been mutations of these viruses. The one thing about viruses is that they mutate, some more slower than others. We've seen this coronavirus already mutating at a rate that's, that's phenomenal. Within a few months of it, of it appearing in the human population, there were already a hundred variations. There's already four or five mutations of it in less than a year. Right? So these things mutate very rapidly. Um, so they, they've somehow they've mutated in their natural environment that's allowed them to do that jump. So, so this is why we've been seeing this increase of these emergent diseases. The, the third reason we've seen this increase in emergent diseases is because in damaging the climate, so um, we've, we've changed the temperature, right? We know that there's warm, uh, global warming and in spite of so many people denying global warming, uh, we, we've gotten away from the language of global We even rebranded it. Yeah, yeah. Right. We're, we're talking about climate change uh, so that people can understand. But we used to call it global warming because the ocean temperatures have increased. Uh, the temperatures at the poles have increased. We've lost glacial ice. 
those things are melting, et cetera, et cetera. So what has happened is that diseases and vectors that carried those diseases that used to be in the South, we're seeing them move up into the Northern climes now because the Northern climes. So, the, so why are we seeing West virus um, that used to be in the global South? We're seeing it now in North America because the vector that carried it in Africa, in West, in West Africa is now found in North America. Right, so the, the the climate change has, in that way, also contributed to new diseases. So what I hear you saying also is that there's this connection between <clears throat> there's a connection between what we've done and what is happening that I don't think a lot of people have really made a connection. We're not responsible necessarily. Like it's just what happens, and I think you just connected that. And is that globalization? No, globalization is something even more profound. Um, but uh, before I get to globalization, I do want to make one point here, which is very interesting, and it, it is li linked to globalization. And it's that um, it's interesting to me that the people in power who have very intentional, because I think it was intentional, began to blame a very specific group of people um, the Chinese and the Chinese Americans for this disease, right? Are the very people who are responsible for dismantling the laws that have protected the climate. So the ones who are responsible in a way for the damage to the climate, which are the North American, North Atlantic industrial nations are the ones now turning around and pointing the finger at people in the global south and say, we're messed up, it's all your fault. Rather than saying, you know what, what is our responsibility? How have we been complicit in the formation of these diseases? What has been our responsibility right, um, to, to this sin against the earth that, is, that, is, that now we're dealing with the consequences of this? How do, we, how do we make this better? And so part of that complicity is globalization. What's globalization? Globalization is a, is a system, if you will, um, that's under, underlying that system is something called neoliberal capital, capitalism. And the purpose of neoliberal capitalism simply is to make profits. Let's make money. And um, as, as Daniel Grudy says, um, they, they, they bow at the altars of the stock exchange and, and, uh, and banks and profit making, and he calls that money theism. They, they are infected with money theism. And so, but globalization then has taken that philosophy, that, that socioeconomic philosophy, and it's now impregnated all our, all our social institutions. It's affected religious institutions, right? I, I've heard of pastors who are more concerned about what's in the bank account of their churches. They've forgotten that they're nonprofits, right? So you have these mega churches and they're interested in gaining profits and, and, and they consider success in terms of their monetary gains and their growth and their, and their and their largeness, not thinking about 
that the largeness of their building affects the footprint of the, of the, of the ecology. But it's also affected our educational systems, our, our social institutions, our health systems. Um, healthcare is not considered a right. It is considered a commodified profit-making machine. And so you have people who, who don't have any health care, who don't have health insurance. You have the privileged few who can have, who can afford the health care. And if you can't afford health care, somehow it's your fault, right? You, you, you didn't get into the, into the swing of things in a proper way. So globalization has two primary things. On the one hand, let's make money. So they lowered trade. Uh, regulations, it's free trade, so we can e more easily make money. And so goods travel across the borders much more easier. But if you think about it, when those goods travel, so do germs and viruses. And the second thing that they did is that they deregulated policies. You deregulate policies so that companies, any company, any industry, is unfettered in its growth for profits. So in that deregulation of policies, the policies that protected against things like toxic dumping and spewing toxins, toxins into the air, those things got reduced, right? Because the thing is for economic growth. So globalization has contributed to climate change it has contributed to um, global warming in this way. It has contributed to the com commodification of land, people gentrification. People's land is being taken away from them. In the global south, farmers are being dispossessed because industries are taking over so that they can, they can um, um, make those lands more profitable. Uh, the Monetary Fund and the World Bank determined policy for nations. So the, the, they, they are pressing upon uh, debt-written uh, uh, countries to pay high interest. So poor people are becoming poorer and losing their lands, uh, so on and so forth. So these things are affecting the land. It's affecting the air. It's creating an earth that literally cannot breathe. We've choked our rivers, we've choked our air, we've choked our people. Both the earth and the poor are being exploited and these things are not unrelated. There is um, an indigenous person uh, by the name of Norman Cassie who said that everything is related and interrelated. You, you damage one, you damage all. You exploit one, you've exploited all. Thank you. And I, I, I want to name that you, you mentioned these connections and you connect how racism and sexism and all of the things are certainly connected. Um, and, and you do a great job in your article about talking about that intersection. And I wonder if you'd agree that policies have all these filters and so policies continue to just make things worse. Um, not that we need to stay on that, but the other thing that, I, that I'm reminded of is that you, somebody asked you, when are we getting back to normal? 
And so because you write about how things had been done and what kind of racist policies that have existed historically and since when, and you get into so much good detail, the idea that we're going to get back to normal is a little disconcerting to me, right? I was, I was uncomfortable with that. And I wondered, someone asked you, when are we going to get back to normal? And what did you think? And I said to them, we, we should not get back to normal. Right? Uh, to get back to normal is to continue to damage the earth, to continue to exploit people. Um, and, and, and eventually, we will get a disease that is, I mean, think about it. We have a disease that right now, in less than a year, right now, has infected 95 million people in less than a year. It has destroyed 2 million people. There are 2, there are two million people less on this planet in less than a year than there were last year at this time. That is unfathomable to me. The next disease will be worse. It will be worse. So we cannot get back to normal. We have to figure out a, a better way to live with each other. So the, the three things that I'm trying to, to, to present in this paper from a theological perspective is number one, to understand that when God created us, God created us with a vision. And it wasn't this, that, that it, it's interesting to me that the first thing you read in Genesis, the first thing you read is about a spirit that, that, that hovers over creation. And what that tells me is that, that God created this earth imbuing it with breath, imbuing it with life, imbuing it with the, the, the fullness of the divinity of God's self, right? The very earth breathes. So for us to treat the earth as a thing to be exploited is a sin against the Holy Spirit. The earth began with God breathing into it. The second thing that Genesis tells me is that God created a multiplicity of things. Sky and sea and things that fly and things that walk and things that crawl and things that bark and things that neigh and things that talk. Two-legged, as the, as the indigenous people say, two-legged things and four-legged things and trees and grass and, and water. I mean, God created a multiplicity. And God said that that multiplicity reflected God's image. The hubris of human beings to say that only human beings reflect the image of God. It is the multiplicity of things in community that reflect the image of God. And as, my, as I understand, as I understand theologically, that is what Jesus referred to when Jesus referred to the Basileia, the reign of God, right? It is God's vision for creation that we were to be imbued with God's spirit. The Psalm 104 says that when God breathes, 
all of creation breathes. And that if God were to hold God's breath, everything would die. We live because God is continuously breathing God's breath into everything, into creation, right? And that is tied into justice. Why? Because God is justice. The same way the Bible says that God is love, the Bible says that God is justice. So this call of God to be community and to be attached, if you will, to God's breathing apparatus, to be a, a people of the spirit, a people of the ruach, a people of breath. This is God's vision that later on in Second Testament, what people know as the New Testament, is what Jesus refers to as the basileia, the reign of God, right? And so this really is what God's framework, God's vision for us is. And throughout the whole Bible, we have repeatedly, repeatedly violated that vision. We have had conquest, we have had enslavement, we have had injustice, and God continuously, continuously, in God's faithfulness and love, calls us back into that vision and says, listen, right? breathe with me, breathe with me. There's a very interesting passage in Habakkuk in which the, the prophet, you know, and he's seeing all this injustice and he's seeing this violation of, he goes to God and he goes, aren't you seeing this? What is wrong with you, God? Aren't you seeing this? And God says, he says, listen, Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And Habakkuk, I'm sure goes, what? I, I don't understand that. And so, but if you read that in the in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew it's beautiful because in the Hebrew what it says is he says God says to Habakkuk the the look at the proud and that word for proud it says crooked neck look at the crooked neck and if you think about a crooked neck a crooked neck person can't breathe right the air cannot flow look at the crooked neck and so he's saying to them if you're crooked neck you can't breathe right. And it's in that context that he says, but the just, the straight neck, the people who are faithfully receiving that breath from me, those are the ones who shall live. Because if you are faithful in receiving that breath, I am always faithful in breathing in. So what is racism? Racism is the manifestation of the crooked neck. What is the exploitation of the earth? It is the manifestation of crooked neckedness, right? What is, it is the inability to allow people and the earth to breathe. We're choking God's breath. What an immense sin that God is breathing and we, we hubris human beings think that we have the right to choke off breath. This is why Ira Gardner said, I can't breathe. This is why Anthony Baez said, I can't breathe. This is why Ahmed Abari said, I can't breathe. We are choking the breath out of people. That is the most profound sin that we can commit. And yet God is faithful and continues to breathe and then calls us into partnership and says, who will stand with me 
straight necked. Because if you're straight necked, you not only receive breath, then you become a conduit and you breathe for others. This thing of breath for me is a very important thing because you see, I'm as, as an asthmatic. Why am I an asthmatic? I'm an asthmatic because I grew up in the Bronx. The Bronx was one of the most infamous places for toxic dumping. I think something like, it was like something like 60% of young kids growing up in the South Bronx are asthmatics due to the ecological racism that was going on there. And I'm one of those, right? So I know what it is to not have breath. I know what it is to be choked off. I don't know what it is to have somebody's with their hand around my throat and taking that breath. I don't know what that is, but I do know what it is to have difficulty breathing. We're doing something worse than that. We're taking our collective hands as a society and choking the breath out of people, out of the earth, out of all living creatures. And, we, and this is why I say we can't go back to that. That is our normal. We cannot go back to that. We have to see a new way of being. We have to live as a straight-necked people. We have to figure out as Christians, as a church, and as a society, how do we do that? And how do we do that in love? I, I think another a powerful shift that we can do here that feels right is to talk about your definition of justice that you do elaborate on in here that sets a vision, right? Because if we're not going to go backwards, we're not going to go to the same mole where you're saying we have a vision from God. This is the vision. A lot of times, certainly some of our denominations were like, yes, we're social justice people. We're all about justice. And I think that you do a, a fabulous job at explaining what is justice and how does that, um, how does that get lived out? Could you explain a little bit of that? Sure. I, I think what happened was that I, I, um, I made a comparison between how the world talks about justice and how um, the Bible talks about justice. And the Bible often talks about justice in terms of fairness, right? Um, what is good and what is fair. But the problem with talking about uh, justice as fairness is that it, it, it assumes that everybody is on the same playing field. And we know that that is simply not the case, right? Um, even when you go to, um, to these uh, courthouses and they show this, um, this embodiment of justice, they show this woman who's blindfolded and holding these scales, right? And they say justice is blind. We know that justice is not blind. We know that justice is biased. Um, and racist. If, if it were not so, uh, we wouldn't have the high incidence of black and brown bodies incarcerated um, in the United States. So we know that justice is not blind. We know that justice favors the rich and the white and disfavors the poor and the black and the brown and the indigenous peoples of this nation. So that is not justice. Um, in the Bible, it's interesting, in the Bible, justice is very intentionally biased. 
justice is very intentionally uh, skewed, uh, turned to what the Bible calls the least of these. Justice is measured by how you treat the most vulnerable in society. When you are good and kind to the most vulnerable in society, the poor, the widow, the immigrant, the stranger, the landless, uh, the orphan, the ones who have no societal protections, when you, are, when you protect them, then that is considered in the Bible a just society. And God repeatedly sends prophets to Israel and he says to them, listen, don't give me your religious mumbo jumbo. I don't want you jumping around. Don't give me your sacrifices. <laughs> if you're going to be mistreating the most vulnerable in society, then don't do that and come to my temple and start, and start doing your religious rituals. I don't want that. Religious for me is that you go to the most vulnerable and you take care of them first. Then you can come to me with your songs. And I think about the number of people in our country right now who are citing themselves as Christians and arguing themselves to be pro-life at the same time that they are passing laws to separate families at the border and, and send canisters of gas to people at the border who have, increased the, who have increased the number of people who have been killed by capital punishment, who are against funding the police. We're not saying defund the police in the terms of not creating peacekeeping forces. What we're saying is stop giving the police military gear to protect citizens. You don't need military, this is not a war. The police are to be peacekeepers, not soldiers. That's what we mean by defund the police. So how can you say you're pro-life if you're, if you're causing death all around you? That's not justice. So justice in the Bible is always about defending the, 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 the least of these. And um, it's interesting that there are words in the Bible that at, that in English, in Spanish, it's always translated as justicia, justice. It's interesting to me in English where we should translate justice, it's always translated as righteousness, which allows, I think, people to do this little, uh, this little, um, this little wordplay and give it a morality tinge to it, right? So if I tithe and if I sing and if I go to church, I'm righteous. But that's not what the Bible means by righteousness. Right. What the Bible means by righteousness is in, fact, is, is in fact justice, that you are in right relationship, that you, and goes back to that Basileia view, right? That you have that, that, com, that community, that there are right relationships within society, that you are in fact attending to the needs of the poor, and the least of these, but that also part of that relationship is with the land because the land is Amen. always sacred. So that you are also taking care of God's garden, if you will, of God's household. I found recently a wonderful translation for Basileia as the household of God. 
the space that is the household of God. So to be in right relationship is to be in right relationship with the household of God, right? So if we are littering God's house with cigarette butts and with acid and with toxic dumping, we're not in right relationship. We're not righteous, right? So to be righteous is to be merciful and loving and in loving kindness and in faithfulness. And again, being those conduits of air to yourself, to the world around you and to the very ground upon which you reside and even to every living creature that inhabits those spaces. You're preaching, you're preaching and we're grateful. You know, you, I think that you, that you remind us that the Basilea includes all of these things, all of the creation. And it reminds me, right, of the Bible verse, de que de Jehová es la tierra y su plenitud, right? Like, yes. yeah, I, you can say that in English. I don't know. Yes, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Amen. And that's a very, for me, a very important text because as I hear people um, singing songs like this land is your land, this land is my land, or, 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 you know, or fighting over borders. You know, this is, I draw the line here and you cannot cross over this line. I wanna remind people uh, that this earth is not our plaything. This is not ours. It doesn't belong to us. It never did. Again, this, this world is God's outbreathing. It is the embodiment of God's breath made flesh. If Jesus Christ is God made flesh, the earth is God's breathing made flesh. It doesn't belong to us. So no, it is not my land and it is not your land. It is God's sacred land. And at some point we are going to be held accountable. And this is why I think the secretary general recently said, Humanity is waging a war on nature. This is suicidal. Nature always strikes back and it is already doing so with growing force and fury. And even earlier than that, in 1996, um, Russell Means, an indigenous activist said, if humanity keeps abusing mother earth, she will retaliate and her abusers will be eliminated. Everything I repeat is related and interrelated because we are connected to God's breath. We can choose to disconnect. And when we do, I think that's really what these two people are, relating, are, are talking about. When we disconnect from that breath, we die, right? Going back to that Psalm 104, God breathes, we breathe. If at any point that breath is held or, or that Psalm doesn't say it, if we disconnect from that breath, we die. Gracias. And to, to uh, grace us so that you can grace us with your wisdom before we leave, I wonder if you would spend at end with telling us about the book of Revelation, right? And the fact that the, you mentioned the book of Revelation being sort of taken as something that's undecipherable, 
um, and that we have no idea what this is about. And um, I'll leave it at that because I think you do place it as sort of um, in contrast to this understanding of how the Basileia is eschatological. And I can't let you go if you like sharing a little bit about that wisdom, predica, hermana. I think it's powerful. So Basileia for me is, is, is there's three poles to it, right? It ultimately, it is a salvific word of God. And that salvific word of God started in creation with the spirit imbuing the earth and everything that is living with God's spirit. And we see it again in creation, in, in salvation, when, um, when the earth, when, when the forces of empire um, basically crucified Jesus, right? Because Jesus is saying, listen, people, you know, God has called us into being this relationship, into being this community. You, you, can't, keep, you can't keep abusing people. You can't keep trampling people. You can't keep letting people go hungry. You can't keep abusing people in their health, right? And Jesus is all about bringing people back into life and, and bringing them back into community. And, and Jesus paid the price for that by being crucified. And God said, nope, the last word is not going to be death. It is always going to be life because I am the breathing God who breathes life. That is always good. And so we have... As a, as, a, as a response or a retort, if you will, to the crucifixion is the resurrection. God is always hope. God is always life. That is God. And so God breathes and Jesus uh, resurrects. This is our, this is, this is why we know that God is life because Jesus was resurrected. And so, <clears throat> you know, um, empire continues and says, no, no, we are more powerful. And again, there's that violation of the Basilea. There is this now, this, there is now actually a, a, un trastornamiento, no? a, a, a malformation of this, of this understanding and this Constantinian church that says, oh, no, no, we are the Basilea. And, and, and human empires are the Basilea. And so, and of course, that, that's where we are now, right? With, with empire, with globalization, and, and all of this. And so I, what I wanted people to understand is that it, it, this, this, this vision of God is said from the beginning, it's reaffirmed in salvation, but it also has an eschatological um, projection. And you know, we hear, we see this word eschatological and people go, oh, that's such a big word, eschatological. Oh my gosh, what does that mean? And that's just a big word in theology to mean um, God's vision for what is to come. But in the spirit, what is to come is already happening. It already started happening in Christ, right? So what is to come is already unfolding. God's vision for us is already unfolding. And that is what the church is called to do, to live out what is already unfolding. So the book of Revelation is not a book about some mysterious codes and sign language and you know and some some mysterious language that we have to define decipher so we can tell what is going to happen it really was about a church that was being faithful to that to that, that vision of god of salvation and coming across and encountering 
the globalizing forces of its time called the Roman Empire and being persecuted by that. And then in being persecuted by that, um, they, they face this unimaginable violence, right? So, so revelation really is a word of hope to the church in response to that violence. And so in that response, um, they are reminded by Christ, right? They are reminded that they believe in a Christ who also faced unimaginable violence at the cross. And so they have this image, they are given this vision, this image of this nonviolent lamb of God who was crucified, who comes with a mighty sword. And everybody thinks of mighty sword and it's, oh, violence against violence. But the beauty of the book of, of Revelation is that in the book of Revelation, the sword isn't violence. The sword actually represents word, the word of God. And if we know word, it's verbo, davar, right? And word is always a word of life. So the mighty sword is really the word that transforms the world. The word is the reminder that God is always breathing life into the world. And so that is the message of Revelation, that God is always going to have an unyielding, inalterable, faithful, straight-necked yes in the face of death, that God's breath and spirit continues to suffuse the world and society with justice and with life and life abundant and life eternal, no matter what can come up against it, no matter what powers that try to choke, no matter what toxic dumping that tries to choke, no matter what global warming or climate change that tries to choke, no matter what runaway viruses that try to choke, that God's life is always a yes and a presence and a continued going on. And in the long run, that the word and spirit of God promises us a new heavens and a new earth that is not in some some future pie in the sky heaven, but is in fact here and now and will be fulfilled. Amen and amen and amen. And that is our call to live out as a church of God. Amen, hermana. Gracias. Gracias. Thank you very much. Thank you for connecting such complex things that are happening around us. Thank you for the lens that gives us direction. Thank you for the vision of who we're supposed to be in that explanation, that reminder, and that we, we might all walk in that way. And so I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your time. And we are grateful to all our listeners. So thank you for joining us. Until next time. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org.
The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.